0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Chat, where we're working to destroy and dismantle stereotypes about justice-impacted people. We can't wait for you to hear from our next guest, so stay tuned. We are here with Bianca Tylik of Worth Rises, and we're just really excited to have you on today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so
1: very much. Uh, Really excited to be here.
0: Likewise, and I've heard so much about worth rises. Um, but you know, I know some of our listeners are, are excited to hear about this as well. So um, can you tell us more kind of about what your organization does and some of the campaigns that you're currently working on? Sure. So
1: Worth Rises, we are a national criminal justice organization working to dismantle the prison industry and end the exploitation of people who are incarcerated and their loved ones. So we always say we don't really care You know, if you're a uh, CEO of a private prison company making $6 million a year or you're a correctional officer making $40,000 a year. We want to uh, shut down the industry and shift the economy away from uh, the carceral system um, and carceral solutions. And we think that, you know, we do that in large part by eliminating the financial interests that exist in caging people um, and putting people under like control. Uh, so we do that through two main verticals. Um, and One is public education and really ensuring that we're shifting the narrative and that people understand um why the system exists the way that it does and how it was built and that there are many public and private um players with a lot of financial interests in the system uh, and they are consistently fighting to expand the system or to defend its current state uh, and so, you know, a lot of our public education work is based on exposing those interests and those players um, so that they can't hide the way that they have for decades now. So one of the uh, sort of projects that we have in that space is we have a textbook and a curriculum about the prison industry. And then we also have a database of all the corporations that are engaged in the prison industry. Uh, On the other side of our work is where we do our organizing and advocacy, and we divide that into sort of two areas, policy change and then also uh, corporate accountability or taxifying the industry. And so uh, on our policy side of things, we are fighting for uh, legislation and other administrative policies that a lesson or end the exploitation of people who are incarcerated. Um, So for example, we're probably best known for our work to make communication across prisons and jails um, fully free. Uh, We passed our first piece of legislation back in 2018 uh, to make uh, calls completely free in the New York City system, and since then have been able to replicate that win in San Francisco, San Diego, Miami, Louisville, uh, and recently in the last two years, also at the state level in um, Connecticut and in California, and we have about a dozen um, states that we're working on now to bring uh, fully free communication. Um, And then on the other side, we do our corporate accountability. And that's uh, really where we hold the corporations uh, and the private sector individuals who are making money off of the system accountable for their role in the harm. Um, You know, I think we find that our secret sauce is combining our policy campaigns with our corporate campaigns so that there's no exit strategy for any player. The government can't point to the private sector and the private sector can't point to the government um, as you know, the culprit for the harm. The reality is there's enough blame to go around. And so we make sure that everyone holds their uh, part of that blame and changes their behavior. And so that's sort of a lot of the work that we do. Um, and obviously there's a lot more nuance to it.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic um, and amazing. And it sounds like a lot of strategy obviously goes into that, It's, you know, by pairing those things together, like accountability and legislation. Um, I, you know, lots of questions were kind of running through my head as you're talking about this great work that you're doing and that your organization's doing. Um, one of them was like, why is, why is it important, you know, for communication to be, Free, I think you know, there might be people out there that are like, Why why should people be able to have free communication, or how much does communication cost? Um, there are people that know really well how much it costs, and then there are folks that probably have no idea.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so you know, I think to talk about the prison telecom industry specifically as like a niche representation of the broader industry, um, is important. Prison telecom is itself a 1.4 billion dollar industry. Um, the broader prison industry is over 80 billion dollars when you include policing that becomes over 180 billion dollars so we're talking about a lot of money um that's at play here moving in different directions but honing back in on prison telecom we have a 1.4 billion dollar industry that's divided among three main players that eat up about 90 percent of that industry um all three of those are owned by private equity firms. Uh, and then the last 10% is are, are much smaller companies. Um, these, these corporations are charging families and people who are incarcerated, um, sometimes 5 cents, sometimes 10 cents, 20 cents, 50 cents, sometimes even a dollar a minute um, simply to be on the phone, right? And what that's doing is driving one in three families with a loved one who's incarcerated into debt. Um, And 87% of those who are carrying that burden are women and disproportionately women of color. So at the end, this becomes not just a criminal justice issue, but an economic justice issue, a gender justice issue, a racial justice issue. Uh, You know, we believe that communication should be free for a number of reasons. One, because communication is largely free in our society and is incredibly, incredibly cheap to provide. Uh, I live in New York City and in New York City on every other city block, there is a kiosk where you can make completely free calls across the country. Um, We are consistently using systems like uh, FaceTime or Zoom or any number of other like video chat systems that are often completely free. Gmail as an email system is completely free. Um, So, you know, these our our society has in many ways progressed so far that uh communication services are really 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 cheap um inexpensive and that many um of our you know sort of cities and states and social governments have really decided that communication is key right i think a we really saw that during COVID, right? I think we all identified with the idea that we needed to be in communication with our loved ones, um, but that it's also just a key function of keeping a society going. And that's true inside too. For people who are incarcerated, um, having access uh, and regular communication with their loved ones, meaning their families, their support networks, social workers, um, ensures that you know they have increased hope on the inside. When they have increased hope, they're more likely to participate in rehabilitative programs, less likely to participate um, in bad behaviors. Uh, It improves the entire environment of a carceral institution, means that it also improves the day today experience of correctional officers who are in that space. It brings people home sooner because um, they're more likely to be invested in themselves and investing in themselves through programming and other things. It means that when they come home, they are more likely to have housing because they're in contact with their support networks. When we know that homelessness is a major issue for people who are incarcerated when they're coming home, means that they're more likely to have employment and all other types of um, supports that are necessary for anyone coming home uh, to be successful. And so what that means is that their reentry is more likely to be successful and the chances that they recidivate or end up back in the system are far lower, uh, which Simply means that it increases public safety for all of us. Um, so all in all, it's communication is probably I would argue the cheapest program you could offer uh, with the best results, the biggest bang for your buck, if you want to say, um, inside of a prison or jail.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, congratulations on your work on that and, and and chipping away at making, you know, communication more affordable and free and accessible to folks. Cause it also, you know, like you've detailed out, it sounds like it's, you know, punishing the, the support network and the loved ones and family and children on the outside as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and as you've pointed out clearly has tons of benefits for you know when po- people have to re-enter society and like who they are connected to obviously not being in massive debt would be helpful um for for the connections of folks that are getting out so I really appreciate, yeah. yeah I can say something I, I appreciate your work on that and um yeah it just seems it seems so obvious but I know that you've been fighting really hard and I like I know there was something signed federally recently as well, right, to would that make communication more affordable in federal facilities? And like, how do you do you have any idea of like what's going on with that and and what the rulemaking process is to to kind of solidify that?
1: Sure. So before I jump into that, something you said made me think of something we've seen recently. Um, you mentioned, right, like families not going into debt and how helpful that would be for them. Obviously, being able to support their loved ones when they come home, and it you know sort of makes me think about uh, the companies that are providing these services and um, and sort of charging these predatory rates, right? They have recently tried to rebrand themselves as like rehabilitation organizations, and um, you know claiming that they're really invested in people's. Um, re-entry they're even like giving really small grants to re-entry or rehabilitation-based organizations in the community. And it always, the irony is wild because it's like, well, if you weren't just driving everyone into debt and everyone had a little bit more money in their pocket, maybe we wouldn't all have to be fighting the same type of re-entry battle. And you wouldn't be putting that money back into the community later, um, you know, having siphoned your bit off the top, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, it's wild. In any case, regarding the federal legislation, so the federal legislation is not actually related to the federal prison system at all. Um, It will naturally affect the federal prison system, but it's a bit broader than that. So the bill that passed, the Martha Wright Read Just and Reasonable uh, Communications Act, uh, was a bill um, with a ton of organizations um, behind it uh, that we had been fighting for for years. And, and I would say... Um, to give a lot of credit to those who were fighting for decades before, you know, we were even part of that fight. And before the organizations and advocates even got involved, there were the families that were fighting um, for decades. In fact, the bill is named after Mrs. Martha Wright-Reed, um, who was a grandmother, uh, who really, uh, in many ways, pioneered this in front of the AC and, and Congress. Um, her son, her grandson was uh, incarcerated and, uh, she, um, had trouble seeing. And so her, uh, her only way really was to communicate via phone she couldn't write letters and she was elderly and also had some health issues and couldn't you know travel um and yet these costs were making it so that she had to actually decide between paying for medication that she needed and talking to her grandson so she could offer that support and so you know she was a huge valiant advocate and she passed away um, a few years ago. And so it's it's in her honor that we continue this work and that the bill was named after her. Um, but basically what the bill does is it uh, gives the FCC or confirms the FCC's regulatory authority over all prison and jail calls. Um, now, that might seem almost um, obvious, but it's not. And the reason it's not is because up until um about the let's say 2012 13 14 was really the first time the fcc even took up the issue of prison Um, and jail phone calls. And then it was a few years later that courts uh, decided, a court decided, that the FCC only had regulatory authority over what are called interstate calls or calls that cross state lines. Um, In the past we might've called these long distance calls, right? Uh, And long distance calls only made up about 20% of all prison and jail calls. And so it meant that no matter what the FCC tried to do in the years um, after that, That it was only going to be able to affect a small number of calls um, given that 80 percent are really what are in-state or local calls. And so what this legislation does was confirm uh, the FCC's authority over all calls, meaning that now the FCC goes from having authority over 20 percent to having authority over 100 percent of prison and jail calls Um, meaning every call needs to comply with the FCC's rules, and the FCC gets to set rate caps. What the FCC can do is essentially uh, evaluate the cost of service that the providers bear, um, calculate sort of a modest um, profit margin, and uh, ensure that these rates are not predatory for a population that doesn't Have a choice over what service they use, right? Um, So that's, and that those rates, I should say, are just and reasonable as defined by a legal standard that the FCC must um, comply with. Uh, Importantly, two other things, or three other things, actually. One is that um, for the first time, the legislation gives the FCC authority over video calls. Um, The FCC has done nothing uh, yet because there's been a lot of uh, contest and um questions about the fcc's authority over video calls but this really uh makes it very clear that the fcc has full authority over video calls which is exciting and should spark some um regulation around that for the first time and rate caps. Uh, It also provides a number of additional protections uh, for uh, folks with disabilities who are incarcerated um, or whose families have disabilities. Uh, So that's exciting. Um, And then the, you know, sort of one caveat or one thing that's important for everybody to know is that it uh, requires the FCC to make a regulation and actually take action no later than 24 months, but also unfortunately no sooner than 18 months. So, um, so there'll be a lot of work in front of the FCC that advocates like us at Worth Rises and our partners um, will be doing over the next year and a half to ensure that the regulation that the FCC issues in 18 months and hopefully no longer um, is, you know, creates the relief that we hope um, And families need.
0: Wow. thank you for explaining all that. Um, It sounds like this is a really, really positive change, Um, and I'm excited to see kind of what things, you know, end up coming out of all of all of that process and and the additional accessibility that's going to be available for folks. I think it's so interesting as you're explaining it too, because you're very eloquent in explaining law and <laughs> um, and financial systems and how they operate. And so you have this really interesting kind of background where it like merges these two things together. And so we're am I correct? Were you in the finance industry at one point in time, the financial industry? And is that how you get some of that background? Um, and then I also have a question about the corporate accountability piece as well. But I, I'm just curious as far as like, you know, where that knowledge base comes from.
1: Absolutely. So I actually spent um a number of years in a previous life <laughs> working on Wall Street. So my background is is probably pretty unique for the, you know, criminal justice movement, I would say. Um obviously I've worked in um, the nonprofit sector for quite some time, and specifically in the criminal justice space. Um, but before that, um, I was also an attorney, and also worked um, on Wall Street um, as a financial analyst for a number of years, uh, some of you know top banks um, like Citigroup and Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, doing investment banking um, and other things, and have also worked in the public sector um, around like, with actual departments of correction. So. Um, I think it's the confluence of all those experiences, both academic and professional or experiential, that allow me to have sort of the um, the outlook um, on these things. And I think, you know, to your point of explaining things in a way that's digestible, I think that's really what we need. I think where a lot of the issues around the prison industry and legislation and all this gets lost is that it feels inaccessible, right? That conversations about the capital markets or corporations feels really inaccessible, that conversations about legislation feels inaccessible. And I think, you know, I made a commitment to myself early in my career that that I didn't want our work to be inaccessible um, at Worth Rises. Uh, I wanted it to be something that we can translate to everyone. And I think that's a big part of our role in this movement.
0: Absolutely. And I, you know, and I've looked at your webpage and seen all of the like really amazing training modules that you have that are fully accessible to the public. So I recommend that people check that out um, because it really does break down. I think these very complex topics into things that like you, like you said, are digestible, right? You can, you can work your way through it and you can learn a lot and, you know, strengthen your own advocacy skills and your own knowledge base. So I think that's really fantastic. Um, Obviously, from getting from like point A to, you know, where you are now, um, were there any folks in your life that were like influential, that were mentors to you? Um, and and if so, like, w- w- was there anything that they kind of did to help move you along in, in those days that you were like, this is a, I'm not exactly sure. Or did you just always kind of, were you always kind of sure of what your path was?
1: <laughs> um you know, I think it's interesting if, if people put together the fact that I was like, you know, worked on Wall Street, then went to law school, then worked in, you know, with correctional departments and now do what I do. People would be like, there's no way you like (laughs) put all those things together and aren't just currently changing, constantly changing. I think, you know, every step of your path sort of starts to inform the next. And I think, um, it's silly to like, think that, you know, this was the grand plan 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So, you know, I think it's natural um, that you continue to make decisions that inform your next one in the next place you want to be. I think for me, in terms of like mentors and people along my journey that um, have helped um, yeah, support me, I think it's less about maybe directing where I wanted to go, because I do think I was a person with a lot of conviction about working um, in criminal justice to end injustice. Um, but it was more about finding that precise role and um, and how to get there. And I had, you know, some great mentors along the way. One mentor uh, when I was working um, on Wall Street, um, who was very, very senior um, on the street and in the firm. And I, what I really appreciated about him is that he was one of the first mentors that didn't ask me just to follow his path. Um, And instead said, what do you want to do and how can I help you get there? Uh, Which is really remarkable because I think there are so many um, senior people that I would talk to and instead their approach would be, here's what I did, you should do the same thing. Um, And so I really, really appreciated that. There was what felt like a lot of autonomy and agency um, with with sort of supports, right? Like while wearing a harness that somebody's like willing to pull for you in, in whatever direction. Um, You really want to go. So I think that was um, some really helpful mentorship over those years. I think later um, when I was actually working at one of the departments of correction, there was a a manager I had who was um, a secretary of uh, corrections actually um, for a state system. And I remember one of the things he said to me when I was getting ready to give like a big presentation was don't worry about making mistakes. I'm behind you and I won't let you fail. Um, and there's um, something, you know, really empowering about that, about saying like, I'm going to like give you the stage to do this. And, you know, don't panic. Don't have anxiety because there's a safety net. I'm like right here. I'll step in. If, you know, things go right. If there's a question you don't know how to answer something to that extent. Um, so I think it's really managers like that. Um, I had another manager, I remember um, at my time on in uh, at Morgan Stanley, uh, who uh, was also very supportive and her sort of ethos was figure out what you love doing and then figure out how to make money doing it. And I loved that because, you know, I think for those of us who didn't grow up in affluence and all of that, as much as we want to you know, chase our passions, we also recognize that, you know, there's a reality to living in this world. That means, you know, trying to also build yourself a financial safety net, not just for yourself, but if you have family or if you're planning for a family, um, you know, and what comes after you. And so uh, that really gave me, I think, permission and a way to think about those two things in tandem, um, but to prioritize what I, like feel passionate about, and then to, you know, sort of employ my creativity to figure out how to make a life doing it. And I feel remarkably blessed because I feel like that's where I am today.
0: That's fantastic. That's, and thank you for like, you know, diving in and sharing some personal stories about folks that were supportive uh, to you along your journey. And I, you know, and I think that even with the first illustration that you gave of the mentor who was like, what is it that you want to do? And I think that's really important. You know, when people are mentoring others, um, like you pointed out, is to really ask what a person wants to do as opposed to kind of make these presumptions that a person might want to walk in the exact same footsteps, you know, um, as the as the person that's providing mentorship. So really good points to point out there. And I appreciate you, you know, diving in there and talking about those things. so, I mean, what what you've mentioned a lot of points that are incredibly important about criminal legal reform or abolition. Um, why do you think it's so important that people understand? like what what are the main things that you're like this is this is really important for people to understand about the criminal legal system. and you have mentioned that it doesn't make the community safer and it doesn't make victims or survivors safer. So like, what are those points that you really want to dig in on?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's so many, right? And so what I say, I say knowing that, like, I'm not the only source and, and what I want to highlight is not necessarily the most important, but it's an important point among many others, right? And so I think for me, it's that there are people who are building wealth off of this system. Very often we hear, like, you know, The kind of, frankly, annoying and trolling, but nevertheless, real um, kind of statements like, you know, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. And whenever I hear something like that, I always like think to myself, like, you do know that crime is informed by corporate interests, right? That like, even what we consider to be criminal activity in this country has been very, has been defined by people with wealth in positions of power, which we also know are even further narrowed down when you think demographically or by gender and and, um, or ability or sexual orientation, any number of things, right? And so, you know, you realize that why has it taken this long to like legalize marijuana? Well, because there was three major lobbies pushing against it for decades, right? Um, Some lobbies that have since changed their position because they figured out how to capitalize on it. But at the time, they were threatened by marijuana legalization um, as a financial uh, on a financial basis. And so those lobbies were alcohol, tobacco and private prisons. Right. If you legalize marijuana, what do you do? You create an alternative for alcohol. If you you use it as a social um, sort of stimulant. Right. You create an alternative to. Uh, pharmaceuticals, um, where, you know, that type of uh, treatment may not be necessary, where, you know, marijuana, uh, medical marijuana might be used instead. In private prisons, it obviously, you know, was a driver um, of admissions and uh, population. And so, uh, so I think just like understanding those pieces Like great right now thinking about larceny thresholds, lar- uh, felony larceny thresholds, is largely being driven by major retailers like Target and Walmart and um, and Kmart, right? Like they're the ones who are advocating to increase the felony larceny threshold. Um, for those who aren't familiar, basically larceny just being theft and the difference between misdemeanor larceny and felony larceny is usually a dollar amount. So if it's something of value over Five hundred dollars, thousand dollars, two thousand dollars—it becomes a felony. And every single state has a different felony threshold. So you know, one state that might be four hundred dollars, and the next state it might be a thousand dollars. You cross that line, and all of a sudden, it's a very different crime um, to steal. And when I I always like think about felony threshold, I tell people like pick up a cell phone, right. Somebody steals a cell phone, and in most states that's felony threat, uh, felony larceny because cell phones, like an iPhone, is incredibly expensive these days over a thousand dollars. Um, and so those things are being advocated for by major corporations. So, what we think of as crime is been shaped by corporate interests. And let's be clear what's not a crime is also being shaped by those same corporate interests because what's not a crime is wage, I mean, wage that is technically crime, but not in the same way, right? Um, there's a lot of things that don't amount, you know, to the same type of penalties, for example, sentencing, felons, all of this because who they are committed by. And so I think it's, for me, what's, what is incredibly important for people to understand is that the system is a contrived system that is not objective, that is not, based on any moral good right or wrong it's based on the interests of the people who designed it um and our piece of it is talking about those financial interests we know that they're also using for example like racial um racism in ways to like further their agendas and there's political interests and all types of other things too um but that's certainly a major one
0: Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for um, breaking that down. And and you strongly feel that exposure of the financial interests and the corporate accountability piece will change things or have you seen it change things?
1: Absolutely. I think to address a problem, you must first know it exists. You must first see it. Um, uh, There's actually a quote and I'm forgetting who it's from, but it, it says, right, Um, a problem that we all see is easy to fix, a problem that almost no one sees is impossible to fix. Um, And so I think exposing um, the abuse, the exploitation, the um, corrupt sort of intentions of the system uh, helps people question it. It helps people um, criticize it uh, and inspires outrage, action um that is needed toward this system
0: absolutely and if folks are feeling a fire underneath them and feeling incredibly motivated um, to help support this (laughs) work uh, what what can they do to help support the work that you're doing at worth rises
1: absolutely so I think first and foremost, in line with this conversation, I would say educate yourself. So visit our various resources. If you want to see the corporate database, go to data.worthrises.org. If you want to um, take a look at the textbook or uh, the curriculum, just go to worthrises.org backslash the curriculum. Um, If you are interested in the campaigns to uh, connect families or around prison phone justice, visit connectfamiliesnow.com. If you're interested in things around prison labor, we are um, leading a major campaign to end the exception in the 13th Amendment. That still allows for the enslavement of people who are uh, incarcerated. And uh, you can visit endtheexception.com to take action or read more. If you're interested in donating, of course, visit worthrises.org backslash uh, donate. Um, And then, you know, other ways to just follow the work. Um, Obviously, you know, you can subscribe um, on our site to uh, our supporter listserv. Um, And you can also follow us on Twitter and on uh, Instagram at worthrises and uh, follow me on on Twitter at uh, just Bianca Tylek. Um, we talk about all these issues, share a lot of articles, and also opportunities for people to take action.
0: Fantastic. And that is at Bianca Tylik T-Y-L-E-K. Is that correct? Yes, thank you, Alicia. Perfect. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And I realized we didn't even get into all of the work that um that you do surrounding unpaid prison labor. So I feel like we're going to have to have around two. That is a huge uh, Pandora's box to open. And and I think that it would be wonderful um to have you on again to to talk more about that and the work that you're doing to to make sure that folks that are working um labor are are getting paid for their labor or not being forced to work for nothing, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's honestly so many things. It's just people actually being protected from slavery and having the humanity and the dignity that comes along with that. Um, and then following that, obviously, the employment protections that we think every um, person is deserving of.
0: Well, thank you so much uh, for all the work that you're doing. And thank you for your time today. It was a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for being with us for another episode of The Chat. We appreciate all of our listeners, viewers, and supporters. If you want to know more about The Uplift in The Chat, head over to our website at www.upliftmentors.org. Join our coalition, drop us a donation, or just spread some love and share this around with your friends and family.